Go ahead and turn with me again this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We are resuming this morning with part 2 of a study that I have identified as Peter's six keys to perseverance in verses 5b through 11. Uh, Lord willing, as Pastor Mike already mentioned, we will also be completing our study of uh, Peter's first letter. And so we can begin our study of his second letter, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. To that end, let's just read again, starting at verse 5b to the end of the letter. Peter writes, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all who are in Christ. Now, by way of quick review, you can certainly go to Sermon Audio and listen to the whole message from last week, but by way of quick review... Let me just remind you of what we looked at in our last study with regard to the first four of Peter's six keys to perseverance. The first key is found at the end of verse 5, where Peter exhorts us, saying, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Uh, as I pointed out last Lord's Day, this seems to be a common theme in Peter's mind uh, throughout this first letter. Peter obviously understood that if those in the local church were to be successful in terms of their ability to remain united in the common cause of Christ and the gospel, if they were to minister their gifts to one another most effectively, which sometimes required them to do things that they can consider beneath themselves, if they were to be able to do this, they would need to humble themselves which, as Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 2, would require them to consider others as more important than themselves. The second key to perseverance, Peter notes, is to maintain an unshakable trust in the Lord. In verse 7, Peter exhorts his readers to cast all of their anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for us. As I said, Peter's likely remembering and applying Psalm 55.22, where we read, Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You know, in short, if we really know that the Lord does love us, 
if we are able to truly grasp the fact that God cares for us and allows nothing whatsoever to happen to us except that which is for our good and for His glory, then we can, in fact, trust Him with all of our anxieties and worries. Once again, we find an important parallel teaching in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I know for a fact that some of you are sitting there and you're saying, well, that sounds all well and good, but I'm still anxious. I still worry about this, that, and the other thing. I've even had people come to me and they say, I've read Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I understand that I'm not to let anything cause me this anxiety that I'm feeling. Pastor, why am I still plagued with these worries and this anxiety? My answer is always the same. You're plagued with those things because you've not availed yourself of the remedy that Paul speaks of. It's as simple as that. He says, be anxious for nothing. How do I do that? By going to the Lord in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving for everything. If you leave anything out, chances are anxiety is going to rear its ugly head and you're going to be plagued with one type of worry or another. Give everything to Him. Cast all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. He really does. Jesus also spoke about this. Places like Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 12. I'm not going to go over those again, but you can read those in your own time and see where even Jesus Mention the fact that worry cannot add a single inch to your stature. I heard an old pastor one time say, worry's like a rocking chair. There's a whole lot of activity, but you don't really go anywhere. I hope you can see that each of Peter's exhortations actually builds on the previous one. Once we truly understand that God owes us nothing, that is except wrath, we can't help but be humbled by the favor that He does extend to us. Amen? Once you realize that you're a worm, as we just sang in that song, once you realize that you're worthy of nothing, that you're a wretch, that there are none righteous, no, not one, there are none who do good, we're all like sheep who have gone astray, once you realize your own pitiable condition before a thrice holy God, then any blessing that comes your way automatically humbles you. Or it should. And once we're humbled by it all, knowing that we're also unable to carry our own burdens, we realize that we can, in fact, entrust those things to the Lord who loves us and cares for us. And what do humility and trust create in us? But the third of Peter's six keys to perseverance, those things produce sobriety in us. You can't be humbled by the Lord you can't cast all of your anxieties upon Him without gaining a sense of sobriety in the process. To be sober in spirit means that we understand because we're engaged in a spiritual battle, if we're to be successful in the fight, we need to remain free of any and all mental 
and or spiritual intoxicants that might hinder our ability to think clearly, to think soberly about all things. Now, what type of intoxicants are we talking about? Well, again, a mental or spiritual intoxicant can be anything that takes our mind off of the main thing. You've often heard Pastor John talk about keeping the main thing the main thing. And yet, how often are we want, are we prone to wander and, and begin debating people on things that really don't matter? Let me just say this. If you have a penchant or some sort of predisposition to argue eschatology, stop. Find a position that you think comports best with Scripture and stay there until your mind's changed by the next thing you read in Scripture. The greatest minds in the universe of theological thinking have never agreed on those things. Before you expend any inordinate amount of time on whether Adam had a belly button, whether God could create a rock so heavy that he couldn't pick up, any of that other nonsense, Remember to keep the main thing the main thing. All of those things are spiritual intoxicants. The minute you substitute listening to sermons for reading the Word for yourself, the minute you go to your favorite celebrity pastor and allow that pastor to mold and shape the way you think as opposed to the way Scripture should mold and shape the way you think, you're being slowly spiritually intoxicated. Stop. Make your appeal to the Lord and Him alone through what He has revealed to us in His Word. Are we still going to disagree on things? Yeah. But at least all of us are striving to keep the main thing the main thing. Don't be distracted. To be distracted means to be intoxicated on one thing or another. Again, I'm not going to go over the same list I went over last week. But suffice to say that if you're being drawn away from gaining a fuller understanding from Scripture of who God is and who you are in light of who He is, if you're not laboring daily to understand what you believe and why you believe it, and then sharing those things with the lost, chances are you're being intoxicated. And if you're intoxicated, that is going to prevent you, as Peter said back in verse 13 of chapter 1, from having your mind girded for action. A distracted man is not ready for action. So in addition to being humble, trusting in the Lord, and being spiritually sober, Peter goes on to say in the fourth place that we are also to be alert. We're to be vigilant. Once again, we have a parallel teaching from Paul who wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, why does he combine those two? Well, because if you're not sober, you're not going to be alert. Simple as that. As Peter says at the end of verse 8, the main reason we are to be sober and vigilant is because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that brings us to our fifth point. The fifth of Peter's six keys to perseverance. And what is that? It's resistance. Resistance. In response to the devil's predatory tactics, Peter writes in verse 9 that we are to resist him. It's the same exhortation that 
James gives us in James 4, 7, when he writes in what I believe is an equally simple, simple way, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now I want you to notice very carefully that we're not told anywhere in Scripture to engage the devil. We are not told anywhere in Scripture to confront the devil. We're told to resist him. Now why do I feel the need to say that? Well, if you've ever been in charismatic circles, one of the favorite tactics of the charismatics is to openly and personally address the devil. They're told that they have the power to rebuke the devil. They're told that they have the power to call out demons from those in whom the devil dwells. Let me be as clear as I can, because this is really important. As secure in your faith as you might believe yourself to be, as spiritually mature as you might think yourself to be, as faithfully as you might think yourself to be wearing the armor of God as a means of thwarting evil, as biblically aware as you are, as wise as you might think yourself to be, you are simply no match for the devil. Is the devil a defeated foe? Yes. But who defeated him? Christ. You didn't do that. You could not do that. You will never be able to do that. In fact, we need to understand that the devil is such a formidable foe because he remains the single most powerful entity among God's created beings. And in a face-to-face -face confrontation, in and of yourself, you would not survive. And again, I don't care how holy you consider yourself to be. I don't care how securely the armor that you think you have on is fastened to your spiritual being. You're no match for the devil. As we read in Jude, verse 9, even Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. If you're in the habit of talking to the devil, stop. It's not fun and games. It's not a light thing. If you're in the habit of addressing the devil, even in playful ways, as we sometimes do, understand who you're dealing with. Understand that you are playing with fire. No pun intended. We're never commanded, again, to take the offensive against Satan. Our posture is always to be defensive. That's why Peter uses the word, and James uses the word, resist and not attack. But the question remains, how do we do that? How do we successfully resist the devil? Well, this brings up Peter's sixth key, which is resolve. Peter writes, but resist him. How? By being firm in your faith. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
In other words, the most reliable way to resist the devil and his attempts at derailing your faith is to maintain a firm faith in your master and his, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we cultivate this kind of faith? You know, are we talking about the kind of faith is like the, the little engine who could? I think I can, I think I can. That's not faith. That's wishful thinking. Instead of saying, I think I can, I think I can, our common mantra should be, I know he can, I know he can. Or better, I know he has. I know he has. But where do we get this kind of faith? It's supernatural faith. Romans ten seventeen. Remember what Paul said there? Faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the words of Christ. Or as the King James says, hearing comes by the word of God. Same thing. Remember as well what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, 14b. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. And what's the net result of the Word of God abiding in them? You have overcome the evil one. The surest way to stand firm in your faith is to literally saturate yourselves with the Word of God. To saturate yourselves. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word translated as richly there is the word that was often used to describe a sponge that was full of water. You squeeze the sponge, you dip it down in the water, and you let it go, and it sucks in all of that water. That's the extent to which you and I are to be saturated with the Word of God. We should be like Spurgeon said of Bunyan. Our blood is Bibline. When they cut us, little Bibles flow out. When we speak, it's as if we're speaking the Word of God. We should be saturated if we are to stand firm. Even long before those words were ever uttered, we have what the Lord said to Joshua. You know that passage as well, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Only then will your way be made prosperous. Only then will you have great success. Success in doing what? In standing firm. Standing with resolve. You know the old expression, a man who doesn't believe in anything will fall for everything. Right? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that His Word is able, as Paul told Timothy, to make us wise unto salvation. As the psalmist said, His Word should be our daily portion. We should love His statutes. We should love His testimonies. We should love everything that He has written to us by way of biblical revelation. We should, again, be as David when he said in Psalm 119.11, Your Word I've hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. How many of you will admit that you're woefully deficient in the area of Scripture memory? 
Do you realize you're cutting your nose off to spite your face? Memorize the Word of God. I am a living testimony to the fact that the more you know of the Word of God, the more trouble you get in, the more the Lord will recall those things in our minds and put us on the, on the right path simply by remembering what He has said to us. The one who is inept or deficient in memorizing Scripture is going to be the one who, when trouble comes, has no recourse but to try to handle it on your own. You can't. Know the Word of God. Let it dwell in you richly to overflowing. Only then will you be impervious to many of the attacks of the devil. And the more you read and heed of God's Word, the greater your faith will be. In 1 John 4, 4, 1 John 4, 4, John wrote this. He's talking about those among his spiritual children, believers, who had overcome those who were of the spirit of Antichrist. Remember what he says there? He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The most effective means of recognizing that Christ is in us the most comforting proof that we have that God's Holy Spirit is in us are those precious times when He reminds us of His Word. When we're able to recall almost in an instant one thing or another from the Word of God that addresses the situation that we're in. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he argues that we should keep on the armor of God. In Ephesians 6, what does he say in Ephesians 6, 10 and 11? He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. How do I tap into His might? He is strong. I am weak. How do I inoculate myself against the wiles of the devil? How do I tap into His strength and claim it as my own? He goes on to say that. Put on the full armor of God. Why? so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And what does Paul cite in verse 16 as the most critical component of this armor in terms of its ability to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one? What is it? It's the shield of faith. How strong is your shield of faith? Do you want a stronger shield of faith? You should, because that will enable you to deflect more of those arrows that come your way. I suspect that, well, let's just make a, an analogy here. The person who does not hide the Word of God in his or her heart, the person that doesn't memorize Scripture as they should, study the Word of God as they should, live out the Word of God as they should, has the equivalent of a shield of faith made of cheesecloth. Pretty sure that most of the arrows are going to pass through, right? They might be slowed down a bit just by the cloth itself, but most of them are going to pass through and you're in danger. The person who does study the Word of God, the person who does let the words of Christ dwell in him or her richly, the person who does 
memorize Scripture and then try their best to live that Scripture out. Your shield, over time, gets stronger and stronger and stronger and eventually becomes completely impervious to the devil's attacks. Not that you'll ever reach perfection. That's not something we can ever attain to. But note again what happens when we resist the devil in this way. What does James say? Resist the devil, he will flee. He will flee from you. Peter goes on to exhort his readers to know and understand that the same sufferings are being accomplished by brethren the world over. What does he mean by that? Well, he wants you to be encouraged. Do you know there's nothing that ever happens to you that's unique to you? As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no form of persecution that you will ever endure that is not also common to other believers. We should take comfort in that. We should take great comfort in that, knowing that there are those around us. And if you look at your brothers and sisters in places like China, India, North Korea, places like that, you can't help but be thankful that we're not suffering that same level of persecution. At the same time, when persecution does come your way and you turn your thoughts to those beloved brethren, what happens? Well, the things I'm suffering begin to pale in comparison. Peter says, be encouraged by that. He's already told us not to be surprised by the fiery ordeal that happens to us. And here he's kind of saying the same thing. It happens. It will happen. It does happen. So there's Peter's six keys to perseverance. If you would persevere under the trials that will come, I don't know how many of you watch the news, how many of you even pay attention to that, and no, I'm not going off on some crazy rant about end times and how it's all... Folks, we're in the end times. We know that. Things are not getting better, they're getting worse. And short of revival, they will continue to wax worse and worse until this whole thing burns up in a fervent heat. Now, we'll all be spared from that, thank the Lord. But things are getting worse. If you don't think persecution will come your way in your lifetime, you're sadly mistaken. It will come. It is coming in varying degrees. It will happen to you. But if you would successfully persevere, then you need to avail yourself of these six things. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. The man who understands that he deserves nothing can't complain about anything that happens to him. Right? Read Job. Good example of suffering under persecution with great faith. Cast all your anxiety on him. He loves your soul. That's all that matters. He loves you. Be spiritually sober. Don't be intoxicated. You know, it's so easy for Christians to become intoxicated just this very morning. There are probably people all over the... Not probably. There are people all over this world who go to church simply for the intoxication. They'll go and they'll hear their favorite praise band do all the latest 
you know, uh, arrangements of their favorite Christian ditties. They'll all sway rhythmically with their hands in the air. They'll all have a wonderful rapturous experience. Then they'll hear some guy preaching a feel-good sermonette for 15 or 20 minutes. They'll all go home thinking that they've really worshipped that day. That's intoxication. What happens when that happens? You've all been in those situations. You've left that kind of scenario. What, what happens? You, you feel good. You feel uplifted for how long? It's almost like eating Chinese food. You laugh because you know. I can eat 10 pounds of Chinese food for lunch and still need an afternoon snack. I don't know how they do that. But there is a Christian equivalent to that. Right? And that is this intoxication that puts us on this high and over time the high wears off. You know a high that will never wear off? It's the high that you glean from the indwelling Holy Spirit who uses God's Word to mold you and shape you every moment of every day. Be sober. Be vigilant. The devil is not currently in chains. Again, apologies to my all-millennial brethren. Try as you might to explain yourself. I'm not listening. No, 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 no. The devil is even now prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Don't attack him. Resist him and stand firm in your faith. And what will be the outcome of our observing all of these things? Verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Simply stated, the very trials that sometimes appear to be the means that Satan uses to destroy us are actually God's way of preserving, perfecting, and purifying us. You see, try as he might, the devil can't do anything to one of God's children that God doesn't intend for him to do. To what end? For my good and for God's glory. So let this be a lesson as well. The next time you find yourself facing a trial, facing a temptation, going through a particularly rough patch in your lives, don't bemoan that. What are we told repeatedly to do when these things come our way? To the extent that we are suffering for righteousness' sake, rejoice. Don't rejoice if you're a knucklehead. We've talked about that. But if you're doing your dead-level best to live in a way that's prescribed by the Word of God, to use Jesus as your primary example through the whole of life, if persecution then comes, praise the Lord because it means He's trying to take me to that next level. He's sanctifying me. He's purifying me. And here's the thing, they, 
only last for a little while. You know, some of you have known nothing but suffering for a long time. Some of you endure trials that last and last and last. And you might be a little bit taken aback by what Paul says here. Or what Peter says here, I'm sorry. When Peter says they only last a while, some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know what your definition of a while is, but this thing has been bothering me for a long time. But think about this. What is the whole of your life in the span of eternity? It's not even a blip on the radar. The whole of your life is inconsequential when you consider eternity. Now think about all the good days that you have. Think about all the blessings that God does bestow on you. Your health, your happiness, your finances, all of those things that we should give God all the credit for. Think about all of those things and then compare those things to the inconveniences you face, the trials, the temptations. You have to admit that the good days far outnumber the bad days. They do. So Peter says, after you suffered for a little while, we need to understand that it is a little while. As I thought about this, I was reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. Go ahead and turn there, 2 Corinthians 4. Just to set this up in verses 8 through 12, Paul explains that as believers, he and his companions were afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not despairing, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in their body. They were constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also would be manifested in their mortal flesh. But, he writes in verses 13 through 15, they knew that their suffering was not in vain because God was using it as a means of showing His grace to more and more people. Then he goes on to say this, beginning at verse 16. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, referring back to what he's just said about how God uses these things to mold and shape his people and to increase the number of his elect. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all co comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How many of you older people love the fact that you're growing old? Not so much, right? You younger folks need to realize that there will come a day when you're not able to do the things you were once able to do. Your eyesight will fail you. Gravity will fail you. Perhaps. It's failed me. Things will start to pop and creak. You'll wonder who poured your Rice Krispies and nobody's poured your Rice Krispies when you get out of bed. Snap, crackle, and pop is kind of the order of the day. All these things begin happening to you, but let me just reassure you with something that all of us who are getting older can certainly appreciate. You know, the, this is my experience at least, and I hope it's yours as well, but 
The older I get in Christ, the more precious He becomes to me. The more I lament the things that I once could do but can no longer do, the more I revel in the blessings that I have in Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. He said, we don't lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, and it is, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Day by day, you're being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Day by day, you're able to read more of His Word, to understand more of His Word. People ask me all the time, well, you've been preaching for 31 years. Do you ever uh, do you get the sense that you've got it all figured out? No. There's not a week that goes by that I don't learn something that I never considered from the Word of God. And I hope that continues. There's not one minute of any of my days where I'm not blown away by God's keeping His promises to me. Shouldn't be the case, but I still sit in awe at what He's doing in me. And not only in me, but in you guys. As He continues to mold and shape you more into the image of Christ. When Paul considered the suffering that he had endured as a believer, and what kind of suffering was that? Well, we're not going to read it again, but if you go to 2 Corinthians 11, you can see that Paul has a pretty impressive list of the sufferings that he had endured up to that point. Hard labor, imprisonment, beatings that nearly killed him, stonings, shipwrecks, frequent dangerous journeys, dangerous from rivers, dangerous from robbers, dangerous from his own countrymen, dangerous from the Gentiles, dangerous in the city, dangerous in the wilderness, dangerous on the sea, dangerous among false brethren, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, cold, and exposure. Not to mention the pressure of concern that he had for all the churches. When Paul considered all of these things, and not only considered them, but compared them to what awaited him in glory, he was able to categorize all these things as well under this momentary light affliction. Yes, you'll suffer. But having suffered for a little while, God promises to perfect you. He who has begun a good work in us shall see it complete until the day of Christ Jesus. He will confirm you. When we get to heaven as believers, wearing the righteous robes of Christ, the only thing we will hear prior to our entrance into glory will be well done, our good and faithful servant. We'll be perfected, confirmed, we'll be strengthened. Has God ever failed any of us who believe to give us the strength we need to endure? Never. And He will establish us. That is, the whole of heaven will know that we belong there by virtue of what Christ has done. What else can be said but what Peter concludes in verse 11 of our text? You know, you think about these things. What else can you say but to Him be dominion forever and ever? Amen. Are you suffering from trials even now? Various forms of persecution? Are you sometimes overwhelmed? 
by what seems to be a never-ending struggle called life. Believer, you need to know that it's all for your good and for His glory. And know as well that the suffering that you're experiencing will be more than compensated for in glory. As we await our transport to glory, we need to know this as well. And this is probably the most important takeaway from all of this because without the necessary component of assurance, we have no way to process or even believe all the things we've been told about how we are able to persevere under trials. We need to know this. We need not have any fear whatsoever as believers of falling from the ironclad grip of His grace. As Jude stated so beautifully at the end of his letter, he's got a doxology there. It's very common, very familiar, should be. I think we would also do well to make this our constant prayer at the end of each day. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Do you understand that? Do you understand how freeing that is? Jesus is willing. He is able. He alone is able to present us before the Father. What does that mean in terms of your constant struggling, your constant working, your constant striving to maintain God's favor? Stop. Stop. The works that you do in the name of Christ for His kingdom's sake, remember those things are fruits of the indwelling Spirit. You're going to do those things if you're in fact His. Understand that. None of us will get to heaven on the basis of our striving in and of ourselves. Yes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, make your calling and election sure. Yes, have a healthy sense of paranoia when you do sin and you find yourself to be at odds at least temporarily, with this God who loves you. Yes, all those things are true, but know for a fact that there's nothing in the entire created realm that's able to separate it from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Know that there's no one able to snatch you out of His hand. Know that all the Father has given Him will come to Him, and of those who come to Him, no one will be cast out. Have that confidence. Not in yourself. Have that confidence in Him. Well, this brings us to Peter's closing words, verses 12 to 14. He says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, or so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. 
And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. So let me just ask you, is this Silvanus the same Silvanus that accompanied Paul? We don't know. Maybe so, maybe no. We really have no way of knowing. It's possible, and Silvanus is not really that common a name. Silas, it's also Silvanus. Whoever he was, though, Peter commends him for being a faithful brother. And what does Peter mean when he says that he had written this letter through Silvanus? Where commentators are, are kind of torn, this can mean one of two things or both. There's little doubt that Silvanus actually delivered this letter. That would have been very common. But Silvanus could have also been what's called an amanuensis. An amanuensis is simply a scribe, someone who... As Peter spoke, Sylvanus wrote it all down. It's not that Peter couldn't write for himself. It's not that, well, Paul had a problem with his eyes, which is why I think he used an amanuensis. But Peter used an amanuensis probably because there were professionals who did this kind of thing. They could write much faster, much more legibly. If you've seen the handwriting of some doctors, every doctor I know needs an amanuensis. Right? And every pharmacist I know deserves a medal of some kind. How they read that, I, well now it's all done electronically. And probably, that probably went over most of you young people's heads, but there was a time when doctors, you, you can't tell what they write. Um, so he used Sylvanus possibly as an amanuensis. Whatever the case, Peter wanted his readers to know that what he had written in this brief letter was the byproduct of and the vehicle for conveying to them the true grace of God. And as such, what were they to do? They were to stand firm in it. As Matthew Henry noted, a firm persuasion that we are in the true way to heaven will be the best motive to stand fast and persevere therein. Now, before we move away from this verse, let me also... Just use Peter's exhortation to make a similar exhortation of my own. Especially after this morning's Sunday school message, you need to know this. One of the primary reasons that we in this church make such a big deal out of God's sovereign grace, not only in salvation, but in every aspect of our lives, is not so that we can call ourselves Calvinists. As a matter of fact, if you've known me for any length of time, you know that I actually eschew that label. I, I don't wear that label. I am a biblicist. I believe that what Calvin taught in many respects can indeed be borne out in the pages of Scripture. I'd much rather be a biblicist than a Calvinist. But be that as it may, the reason we tout the sovereign grace of God is simply because any salvation that has me as a component in terms of making that salvation real, making that salvation effective, anything that has me in anything in my life robs God of the glory that is His and His alone. That's it. That's it. And not only that, any doctrine that includes me as having any part in my salvation 
does absolutely nothing to give me the comfort and assurance that I need in order to stand firm. I'm telling you folks, if I saved myself, if I had anything to do with my salvation, I'm standing on shaky ground. Why? Because I don't trust myself. Anybody here trust yourself? No. We can't trust ourselves. We remain encased in these bodies of death. Our flesh continues to be at war with our spirit. If I had anything in my flesh to do with saving myself, I can't rely on myself to keep myself saved. That's problematic. And let me just ask you this. I asked the same question this morning. Would you rather attempt to stand firm in your own decision-making abilities or in the sovereign, monergistic, immutable, and impeccable grace of a thrice-holy God? It's kind of a no-brainer, right? Peter wants us to know that the things he's written in this letter have their source in the true grace of God, which enables us to stand firm. Peter goes on to write in verse 13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings, and so does my son Mark. So who is she who is in Babylon? Now there are certain varying opinions on this. But I believe, especially given the reference to Peter's son, Mark, as he says, that being in the same breath, I think this is a reference to Peter's wife. And how do I know that? Well, again, there are some who believe that Peter's using the name Babylon to refer symbolically to Rome. You need to know something, though. That's not something that Peter would have done. The first, the first person to equate Babylon with Rome was actually John in the book of Revelation. Prior to the writing of the book of Revelation, no one, at least no one on record, ever referred to Rome as Babylon. Secondly, Peter is known to have ministered to the Jews, the massive Jewish population in Babylon. And who did Peter take along on many of his preaching trips? His family. His family. It's very possible that Peter had left his wife and son in Babylon. The eminent Greek expositor Henry Alford said this. He said, there's no reason whatsoever for regarding this as any other place but the Chaldean capital, which is Babylon. Matthew Poole great Puritan author and theologian, wrote that it was most probable that Peter was in Babylon and Chaldea when he wrote this letter. That's not really far-fetched, again, because there was a great number of Jews there that Peter, being the apostle to the Jews, would have been ministering to. I don't think, unless it's warranted, we should go into Scripture and seek out a cryptic meaning. Don't, don't do that. There are places you can do that in things like apocryphal writings, things like, or not apocryphal, but uh, apocalyptic writings, things like the Revelation, uh, prophetic Scriptures. There's some leeway there. But when Peter's writing a letter, closing this letter, and he's saying, hey, she who is in Babylon greets you, it's probably someone who is in Babylon, a person in the literal city of Babylon. As does, he said, my son Mark. 
Now, does this mean Peter had a son named Mark? Not really. Could be that he's referring to Mark in the same way that Paul referred to Timothy. Remember when Paul refers to Timothy, very often he refers to him as my son. We don't really know. Some people, myself included, believe that this is a reference to John Mark. You know who John Mark is? He wrote the gospel according to Mark. Right? Same John Mark. Now, why would I believe that? Well, historically, Mark, John Mark has always been identified as an interpreter of Peter. Historians have remarked from very early on that John Mark was by Peter's side for most of his ministry and was actually the one who passed along a lot of those teachings. And if you read Mark's Gospel, unlike any of the other Gospels, Mark's Gospel is as close to Peter's own teaching, closer than any of the rest. So it's just very intriguing. Could it be that he had a son named Mark? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I don't think all of these things would um, have come to fruition the way that they did without this being probably somebody of John Mark's stature. Peter ends his letter with a familiar farewell. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. A kiss was a sign of brotherly affection, much like it is in Romania. I've told you before about my first trip to Romania. I get out of the van, I walk up to the doors of the church, and before I can get to the door of the church, at least 17 men had kissed me. Not something you want to experience if you're not ready for it. Take my word for it. But it was the equivalent to them of a handshake. As a matter of fact, you go to shake a Romanian's hand back in that time period, chances are you get the dead fish, you know? Kind of like, oh, okay. They'd much rather kiss you. Why? Because they believed that to be a, a really deep sign of affection for brothers and sisters in Christ. And no, I'm not advocating you do that today. Shaking hands, hugging if appropriate, it's okay. And what did Peter wish for those in receipt of his letter? He wished them peace. Far from being just a customary closing, he really did want them to have peace. Persecution will come. The periods of peace that you do experience will be rare. But I wish that for you. Do we not wish each other peace? And remember, peace is not merely the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of righteousness. Peace can come even during the most tumultuous times if we know exactly what it means to live righteously before a thrice holy God. As Alexander McLaren once said, peace comes not from the absence of trouble, but from the presence of God. Do you know that peace? I know for a fact that there are some here this morning who don't believe. And in a chaotic world, you're looking for peace. You're longing for peace. You need to know that the only peace that matters, the only peace that will satisfy you is the peace of Christ. You've probably seen the bumper sticker, right? 
says, uh, no Jesus, no peace, you know. And then on, under that it says, no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace, K-N-O-W. I mean, it's corny, but it's true. If you want peace for your souls, then entrust your souls to the one who loves you and can give you that peace. I'm not saying that becoming a Christian will solve all your problems. We're not that kind of church. As a matter of fact, becoming a Christian might just cause you more problems than you currently experience. Why? Because now you have the added component of the devil chasing after you. Life won't be easy. But even in the midst, even at the height of persecution, you can have this peace. Do you have that? I pray that you do. I pray that if you don't, you will before this day is over. Today is the day of salvation. Call out to Him while He may yet be found. And He'll save you. Those of you who do believe, do you have this peace? Or are you still plagued by all the troubles, anxieties, worries, and so on and so forth? Let me just tell you again, if you avail yourselves of everything that we're taught, not just here in this passage, but throughout the Word of God, you can know this peace. Let go of yourself. I'm not saying let go and let God. That's fraught with its own problems. But let go of this incessant need that you have to create this peace for yourself and allow the God of peace to come in and give you His peace. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who labor. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you peace. I will give you rest. I pray that we all know that type of rest. I pray that even now God might be preparing us to go through Peter's second letter, which, Lord willing, we'll pick up next week. In the interim, read Peter's uh, first chapter of that second letter. Familiarize yourself with the surroundings that involve the writing of that letter. And hopefully, Lord willing, we can all come back together and embark on a new journey through that second letter next Lord's Day.